Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions, a few days after the winter solstice. So the days are growing longer, and so our hearts and minds and bodies are all turning to greater amplitudes of health. So that is that to which we thought we would dedicate this session. My name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. (laughs) And I am Andrew McCarran. And Andrew, I think that you had our introduction as the healthiest member of our triumvirate. Oh, yeah, doubtlessly. <laughs> doubtlessly. I, I, well, I doubt that. Well, we determined last time we met that um, that there isn't a heck of a lot when it comes to definitions of, of, of happiness or psychological well-being, rather, within academic psychology, that the, the emphasis tends to be on illness. And within the study of psychology, there is a subfield called positive psychology. And that was coined by this guy, Martin Seligman, in the late 1990s. So fairly recently, he published this work called Authentic Happiness, which some see as um, an outcropping uh, continuation of work done by um, Abraham Maslow in the the mid-20th century, in the the mid-1950s. But all of this really um, can be traced back within the realm of intellectual history, at least, to um, to Aristotle. Aristotle had this concept of eudaimonia, translated by some as happiness, but um, the more appropriate translation is living and doing well. Eudaimonia, living and doing well. And Aristotle, in the, uh, the Nicomachean Ethics, posits that all human beings, trans-historically and cross-culturally, really want this, want to be doing well, um, yearn for psychological well-being, that it's the, um, the telos, it's the ultimate objective of, of human life. And whether someone achieves it or not uh, cannot be determined until after they die. It's really, it's, it's a call made by um, that individual's community. You know, did they live well? Did they flourish? Mm. Did they thrive in the lifespan? And in short, he posits that um, the, the fundamental component of living and doing well, human thriving, involves virtue, erete, moral virtue, but it go, it's deeper than that. A person has to be able to live virtuously regardless of what nature or circumstance throw in his, her, in his or her path. That um, yeah, that that is the definition of psychological well-being. Um, we, yeah, it's easy to be like healthy when things are going well, but the, the real test is when things aren't going well. When there's a sudden turn in the road, um, yeah, how, how do you respond to it? And uh, the, the people who have hardiness, who are able to respond to things with with virtue, um, inauspicious things, challenging things, tragic things, unexpected things really are um, individuals who are close to eudaimonia or close to to human thriving, as close as one can get. And Sam, when we were teaching in the the language and thinking program, we read a book by a philosopher 
named Jonathan Lear on the Crow mm. Indians, on the Chief Plenicu. And I don't want to harp on this, but Jonathan Lear puts Plenicu forward as a quintessential example of a human being who um, defines the psychological well-being, this thriving from an Aristotelian perspective, mm -hmm. in that he was yeah. able to continue living a meaningful life even after the buffalo disappeared even oh. after um, the federal army um, vanquished the Crow Indians, um, he was able to find a way. So uh, yeah. that's where I would like to start and respond to anything. Well, just just responding to your connection to Aristotle, it would seem to me that then uh, living well is connected up with ethos. Um, mm -hmm. You know, pathos, ethos, logos, ethos, one's standing, one's authority, the trust that a hearer has in the speaker based on their experience, hmm. right? So it seems to me like that's sort of an ethos. And, you know, and Lear picking up on him as a voice for the crow and as exemplary of this Aristotelian virtue, and also the fact that the judgment of it is based on society, right? That after your hmm. death, if you've lived well, your name will continue to flutter on the lips of those who come after you. And then it reminds me of the uh, Viking, you know, who say that you do good <laughs> in order to not feel shame. It makes me think about in Judaism, they have this concept of the Lamed Vav, the Lamed Vavniks, that there are uh, 36 people who I guess traditionally are always men who are the just men. There's a book, a novel called The Last of the Just, but I forget who wrote it, that I read in Hebrew school in my, when I was older in Hebrew school. That was a, a tragic novel about the Holocaust, but it's about this idea that there's always these 36 people, just men. They're, they're like uh, saints, unheralded saints in the world at all times, and they keep the world going. That's why the world exists. Is because of these Lamed Vavniks, as they're called, kind of in Yiddish. Lamed Vav means 36 in uh, Hebrew. You know, these people are unheralded. They die. They're, I always think of them as people that run candy stores or have kind of, uh, you know, maybe like a fabric shop. Maybe just because I think of Jews as having those kind of shops. But, you know, and, and I suppose in a broader definition, they don't have to all be Jews. But um, th these are people that are not remembered after their death particularly they're not notable their their righteousness is unremarked it's yeah. kind of invisible or anyway that's my sense i mean people around them recognize their sanctity their spirituality but they're somehow they're not notable in that kind of heroic roman way or heroic viking way you know, aristotle just to to qualify didn't suggest that the individual needed to achieve immortality or through fame or notoriety. It's more that when the person dies, the family and friends, the local community will agree that yeah, that was a good mm. life. That th there's some mm. sadness, uh, as there always is with death, but um, there's a sense that the, the individual lived the full contract, uh -huh. mm. You know, mm. was virtuous, was, was engaged, was ultimately good. There can be flaws there as well, struggles, hamartia, tragic flaws, of course. But the sum total of all of the moments of that individual's life amount to, um, I, I, I suppose, uh, what you're describing. 
you know, a certain core goodness of virtue uh, in practice. But would you say that that life, Andrew, is a healthy life? In other words, just kind of circling back to what we want to get a grip on, you know, this health. What is yes. health? Well, yeah. for Aristotle, um, you know, we don't have to um, confine our thinking to the Aristotelian, but Aristotle thought that health was this with um, what he referred to as the doctrine of the mean. Health had everything to do with moderation. Huh. You know, finding the mean between deficiency and excess. Mm. Pretty much in everything that one does, whether it's one's relationship to sexuality or um, the relationship to stimulants like coffee, finding moderation. Yeah, that's interesting because I was going to talk about my father, who is 101, you know, when I was making notes for this uh, conversation. And uh, I talked to him the other night on Christmas Eve. You know, we're Jews. We don't celebrate Christmas Eve. But I thought he might be a little lonely on Christmas Eve, so I called him. He's very close to 102. February 9th is his 102nd birthday. And, you know, as he normally does when I talk to him, he said, I feel really good. He said, I don't know. I don't understand it. I don't know why. I have a terrible diet. And... uh, you know, he's never, he smoked for decades, you know, he's never really exercised terribly much. But, um, and then one thing I've thought about him is, yes, he has a terrible diet, but he does eat in moderation and he's gotten quite thin. I can no longer fit into his pants. And uh, so he eats bad food, but in moderation. Maybe moderation is more important than what you eat. It's how moderately you eat it. And also, he eats what he likes to eat. He eats uh, a lot of the Jewish foods that he liked as a kid, blintzes and knishes and salami. So, I don't know, you know, maybe Aristotle sounds a little too grim for this kind of concept, but maybe eating what you like and eating in moderation uh, will make you live to be 101. Well, it makes Uh, sense. There was this um, study that came out, I'm forgetting what it's called, he, um, he was on longevity, and not only long, longevity, but also um, thriving, living well, um, happiness. And the individuals who lived the longest and seemed to have the greatest quality of life were people who indulged a little bit. They weren't the teetotalers. Mm. Um, in fact, um, when it comes to longevity, it's not the teetotalers or the heavy drinkers that live longer. It tends to be the moderate drinkers, for example. Mm-hmm. So people who do have pleasure... It's you know it's less Aristotelian and more Epicurean. Finding yeah. what gives you pleasure and enjoying those pleasures moderately, uh, not living an abstemious life, mm. and uh, trying to create a life space that's relatively undisturbed, where where you can enjoy your pleasures and the company of your family and friends and do whatever it is that calls you that brings mm. you meaning. Um, that that that's going to lead to well-being more often than not from an Epicurean perspective. Thing, what I'm hearing is the sense from Aristotle and with this Epicurean spicing that, you know, if becoming a connoisseur of moderation is maybe mm. a path to, ha- to health. There's that, it's not only in Buddhism, but um, that aphorism that the more salt 
you taste, the more the more you want. That's mm. something freeing about moderation. That that excess excess can lead to great unhappiness. It can lead to an excess of desire. Excess can lead to too much desire that never never feels um, satiated. Mm. Mm. What I was going to say about uh, having vices or pleasures, but maybe vices, is uh, yeah, because you 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 hear a lot of people who lived really a long time who have like. Well, actually, my dad, come to think of it, has a, a scotch every night. He has, like, he asked his doctor, how much scotch can I have a day? The doctor said two fingers. So he has two fingers of scotch, and then the rest all seltzer, the rest of the glass. And uh, so, uh, you know, people that drink a, a one whiskey, one little whiskey a day, or people that smoke one cigar every day or something, you know, you know, what is depression? Depression is the feeling or the way people describe depression is having nothing to look forward to. And uh, what is longevity is having something, having a pleasure to look that's forward brilliant. to. That, that's, that's the beauty of moderation is that you, you hang it like a carrot and a stick. You hang that next pleasure in front of yourself, and and you have to win it. You know what yeah. I mean? I like that I idea of futurity, of looking forward as yes, being a right. means of extending one's life, perhaps, and extending one's arc of health. And um, Epicurus, who I've been reading quite a bit of lately for this book I'm writing on the classicist William Mullen, Epicurus is um, – careful to point out that those pleasures should be attainable pleasures like that, mm. like the two fingers of scotch, that the ple that you're going to be unhappy if that pleasure in futurity is caught up with the acceptance of other people or something you need to get or convince someone to give you. Right, right. You have to win the National Book Award, yeah, exactly. for example. Yeah. Oh, you know, as Bob Dylan um, sings in, um, what's the song? When I paint my masterpiece, someday everything will be different. When I paint my masterpiece, this yeah. this illusory notion that you will be transported to some new ontology, if only dot, 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 fill in the blank. You know, you win that award or get that book published or get tenure. Yeah, although, you know, sorry to interrupt, but, you know, I think maybe you need both. You need the attainable... Because I get the feeling from when I paint my masterpiece, which obviously is a somewhat ironic song, he's a little bit ridiculing himself for believing that. But look at Bob Dylan. What is he, 79? He's a pretty serious metal sculpture, sculptor now. You know, he's a guy who has given himself the new goal to be an interesting uh, sculptor. So he does put out these big goals for himself. As well as little, assuming Dylan also puts out little attainable goals. There, there's nothing wrong no. with having a big overarching goal as long as your your self worth is not dependent on achieving Correct. it. Correct has a different role. Correct has a role of of inspir inspirational role. Yes, you see what I'm saying. Yes, as long as it doesn't become like um, a source of tyranny and torture. Um, yeah, yeah. That oh. I'm nothing, you know, unless this thing happens. It's fine if it happens, great, you know, no problem. I'm sure it will elevate the spirits and it's a wonderful thing to accomplish things, but it can't be the sole source of pleasure, that the smaller obtainable pleasures really um, are where it's at. The question I would have is, um, just speaking about Bob Dylan, is he careful in his care of his own body? 
does he eat moderately? That's what I heard. Moderately, smoke moderately. What's his um, relationship? My friend Raymond Foy, he he smoked, uh, what's the word? You know, he was a chain smoker for decades, I think. That's the impression I get. And had a drinking problem and I think had a heroin problem. But according to my friend Raymond Foy, who seems to know the inside story on everything, uh, Dylan stopped smoking, he stopped drinking. Although he recently put out his own whiskey, whiskey or scotch, whiskey, Heaven's know. Door whiskey, three different forms of Heaven's Door whiskey. Yeah, but apparently, according to Raymond, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, doesn't take drugs. He's seventy-nine, as I said, you know, and still going strong. So maybe you know the other thing is maybe you need to bail on your vices at the right moment. Mm-hmm. You know, not too early, not too late. Like maybe I made the mistake too early of uh, of giving up everything. I mean, you know, on one you know, hand, Dylan may be one of the thirty six. I think yeah. Dylan probably is not a not exemplary for us to you know put together a general statement on the nature <laughs> of health just because he's such an outlier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's not a normal person. I wasn't going to tell this story about vices that Mark Twain used to tell. It's something like this. So Mark Twain said, you know, I was very sick. I went to the doctor. He said, give up cigars, give up alcohol, give up women for two weeks. You'll get better. So I did. And uh, I got much better. I I was fine. But meanwhile, there's a very old, pious woman. And she got very sick. She went to the doctor. The doctor said, Give up cigars, give up alcohol, give up uh, men uh, for two weeks. She said, I can't. I don't do any of those things. So she died. That's the punchline. It is, that is interesting in terms of, I guess, the Hinayana path, um, you know, which is a path of mm. renunciation. It is crucial mm. to amass a certain amount of, you know, misaction or misdeed or you know, devilishness and, um, you know, gross human pleasures, mm. et cetera, et cetera, so that you have something to renounce. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, I, I don't know if we've discussed this in this podcast, the famous line from uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, who had a kind of decadent youth, and he knew he would eventually become a saint, but he, uh, you know, was in no hurry. And he said that he prayed, oh, Lord, give me strength. But not yet. Wasn't that it? something like? Yeah. What, what does that Lenny Bruce had a one-liner? I read the Confessions. I loved it. I read it in reverse, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, the, uh, that's right. Beautiful. The, the idea is that you you accrue a big mass of sin, and that that mass mm. then the greater its its strength, etc., will catapult you. You know, in the other direction toward the divine. <laughs> yeah, and if you don't have that, if you live this, you know, virtuous, normal, uninteresting life, and then become a renunciate, you've got nothing. You know, you're you're just kind of a milk toast, either on either side of the is of the all, equation. Is that all you got? <laughs> you know, the, the Catholic saints. Medieval saints and early modern, I'm sorry, um, late antique saints that I'm most interested in tended to live um, a life of excess first, whether it's Augustine or St. Francis. <laughs> yeah. I had a friend, a friend who was a nun. She was a former nun in my meditation group. I hope she never hears this podcast. 
And she had this kind of nun-like way of speaking, you know, from her years as a you know, renunciate, but she had quit. And then one time she just happened to mention, you know, her earlier life. And she said, uh, yes, before I uh, was a Didi, I had hundreds of lovers, hundreds. I remember her saying it, hundreds like that, with great emphasis and great exactness. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that really is not how I Wait, picture it. hundreds of lovers while she was a, a Catholic nun? No, she was a nun in my meditation group in Ananda Marga. She was a, like an orange nun, not I a black she, nun. She wore like an orange veil, an orange uh, cassock or whatever they're called. But before she was a nun, she had hundreds of lovers. And I loved the way she said it. You could sort of feel the feeling of having hundreds of lovers in the way she pronounced what? that word. Turn on? turn on? I think so. I remember dimly. The weird thing is, the crazy thing, I shouldn't tell you this story. My wife called me up before we, when we were just friends, we were taking this poetry project, a workshop in poetry together. And one day she called me up and she asked me to sleep with her. And, but she didn't have my number. I didn't know who she was. She said, this is... And I'm wondering if you'll sleep with me. And I thought she was that nun. Because she had her name, and now I've given her name away. Oy. But anyway, yeah. It was like, uh, so I guess I was maybe attracted to her. I don't know. I'm very, like, unconscious of attraction. You know, if someone calls you up and asks you to sleep with them, make sure who it is. That's my advice to you listeners out there. <laughs> I've always had this sense, and it's my own idiosyncratic sense. I'm sure other people feel this way, too. I'll share it with you. It's that when it comes to well-being, when it comes to health, that some sort of spiritual life is important. Mm. That spirituality, however it's expressed, whether it's through... Mm. Hinayana meditation or renunciation or whatever or prayer that there needs to be for most people there need there is some most people who we might consider to be doing well thriving that there's probably some sort of spiritual practice. My you know my follow-on to this idea of becoming a connoisseur of moderation just to return to that hmm. aspect is that that causes one to evolve a space between yourself and the outer world that's measured you know where you're measuring yourself in relation to other things around you which i, I think is an inherently mm -hmm. spiritual um space it has mm -hmm. to do with breathing right which is spirit so i would agree that there is a spiritual component, at least to this the becoming connoisseur of moderation, but I don't have anything to speak into making what you say more right. Well, <laughs> but you 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 found that to be true in your own life. I consider you, Sam, to be a pretty spiritual person. Elisa, my wife, pretty Elisa, my wife, um, <laughs> believes that you're um, pretty evolved as a spiritual being. Really yeah. sweet of her. Yeah. Well, I, I, what can I say? I, I would say that I'm immoderate, however. Really? Yeah. I smoke, I drink, I fornicate, you know, as much as I can. So, you know, I mean with lots I, of women? Well, there's, you know, no, no, I'm monogamous. Yeah. I'm married now. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, 
you know, I exercise a bit, but it definitely falls off. I overeat sometimes. You know, I have a real problem with peanut butter. Peanut butter. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, I have certain food groups that I have a difficult time maintaining my buffer. I have an addiction to peanut butter as well. To peanut butter? Yeah, I, I like uh, putting milk, banana, and peanut butter into a blender and drinking it. But getting back, you know, getting back to Epicurus for a moment, in addition to moderate, um, moderate pleasures and living the undisturbed life, he thought the most central ingredient to the good life, to health, to thriving, was friendship. Wow. And, uh, you know, more so than um, familial relationships, more so than lovers. Mm -hmm. There was something about the ability to form and maintain friendships. Enduring hmm. friendships over a period of time. That was both an indication of psychological, spiritual health and a source. Hmm. Yeah, I never knew that. That's a great uh, theory. I'm an enormous believer in uh, friendship. It's uh, it's something I've sort of, you know, I, I have no fixed beliefs, even though I just said I'm a believer in friendship. I think of myself as having no fixed beliefs, but I sometimes say to my daughter, like the way they used to say in written on on bathrooms, you know, there's nothing so overrated as a bad fuck and nothing so underrated as a good shit. Like I feel uh, that uh, the same is true of friendship. Like friendship's the most underrated uh, pleasure, achievement, human achievement, particularly in America where nobody has any friendships. You know, everybody is just trying to get richer and richer, basically. Sits alone watching you know, sitcoms and not laughing. <laughs> yeah, I tend to, I tend to agree with that. I tend to agree with that. I, I, it's always, I, I think we're similar in that sense, Sparrow, maybe Sam as well. Oh, yeah. It, it's a practice that, uh, even when it's challenging, it, it's, it just feels inherently meaningful. Um, I, I, I believe that I would be in a rubber room somewhere if it weren't for the love and support of my friends over the years. Mm -hmm. And I, I really think it's my greatest achievement. Uh, I'm not saying that like I have some supernatural um, capacity as a friend. I let people down. I'm self-involved. All of that. Views. Yeah. Well, you write. You're a writer. It's very hard to be a friend and a writer. It's they're sort of incompatible traits. In but way. when friends go away, I feel absolutely heartbroken. You know, one thing I'm aware of is that there isn't much language in English, at least, for um, the emotions of, of falling in love with a friend or going through a breakup from a friend. It sort of doesn't even be known. even the word is somehow uh, seems what's the word uh, insufficient. You know, it's a friend. It makes it sound flippant and, and kind of frivolous, you know, a friend. Oh, he's one of my friends. So what? You know, whereas a friend is like, whereas like, actually my dad was talking the other day. I don't know. I don't think I told you guys this. My dad was talking about being in Cuba and how you can call people comrade when you're oh, in yeah, Cuba. You he met some this. English. I talked about this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was, my dad was talking about how comrade is a so much better word than friend. And, and comrade conveys kind of what me and Andrew are talking about. That, that sense of really brotherhood, yeah. except, you know, of course you can have a friend who's a woman, in which case it would be siblinghood, I guess, would be the word, <laughs> yeah, which isn't I, even a word, tragically. Yeah, I, I join you in celebration of friendship and of fellowship. 
the, the direction that I always take it, though, is that I, I believe that human beings also are healthiest and feel well when they're in tribal circumstances, you know, oh, archaic, yeah. kind of an archaic tribalism. But even, you know, I used to work on movies. I was a utility sound technician. And movies, the kind of <laughs> sense of collective work and mobility also, you know, so it had a nomadic mm. thing. You would go from house to hmm. park to farm to, you know, all these different sets, all these different scenes. Mm. You know, very mm. profound sense of real meaning between us. That's a financially circumscribed experience, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think that human beings are happiest in tribal life. I believe that's the direction that we should try to, you know, evolve human beings. You know, I think it's the only way we're going to survive. Yeah, this is, yeah. I, again, this, this is something that, um, that Epicurus, um, you know, I'm striking that chord quite a bit, but, um, it's all there. This is something that Epicurus recognized in his uh, establishment of, of the garden. Mm. He put together this, this garden. He bought um, two acres of property on mm. the outskirts of, um, of Athens, where um, he lived in um, a tribal community of philosophers, of philosopher friends. Wow. And just day in and day out, enjoying simple pleasures, um, contemplating the universe, gathering for collective meals that this was you know in, in an undisturbed place in a beautiful location that um all mm. of these ingredients were central to it, to thriving to the good life to being healthy psychologically so much so that at least according to his legend even when he was dying uh he was able to um, experience uh happiness psychological well-being mm -hmm. you want to hear this great quotation from the final letter that he wrote? Oh, yes. Absolutely. I, I have it right here. He wrote it while he was dying? He wrote it the day that he was dying. Wow. Um, so let, let me find it. It's like those Zen masters would have their poem, their death poem. You know, while they're dying, they're working uh, on their death poem, which is kind of neat. Something I want to do, you know, I want to have, oh, yes, yeah, Sparrow wrote this great poem. as he So he going. wrote this letter to his friend, Edomenius, on the day wow. of death, according to legend. Um, this letter was included in a third century CE biography of Epicurus, which would have been about, what, five, six hundred years after the man's death. Hmm. So um, whether he actually wrote it. Um, is debated, but um, there are a number of Epicurean scholars who um, argue for its authenticity. So mm. uh, this is from that letter. I have written this letter to you on a happy day to me, which is also the last day of my life. For I have been attacked by a painful inability to urinate and also dysentery, so violent that nothing can be added to the violence of my sufferings. But the cheerfulness of my mind, which comes from the recollection of all my philosophical contemplation, counterbalances all these afflictions. Hmm. It's pretty to think, that, though. I don't know if that <laughs> that's how it is. It's funny that he dies of, of dysentery, which is like the hippie disease. <laughs> like the, uh, the, uh, the rainbow gathering gathers every year on 
first of July, for the first through the fourth of July, in some uh, natural national forest, and they have this kind of uh, temporary community of used to be like thirty thousand people, but it's still I think thousands of people, many of them naked, all living communally without uh, money. Money is uh, money and alcohol are forbidden, and uh, uh, it's a kind of utopia, except everyone gets dysentery from like peeing in the stream and then drinking the water. And uh, it's just like they, it's just the anarchist disease kind of. When you're living tribally, like uh, Epicurus was, you know, you, uh, uh, you're going to foul your own stream pretty easily. Giardia or something. Yeah. I was always struck by Suzuki Roshi, who wrote the, I guess, huh. it's, how many pillars are there to Zen? Is it the seven pillars of Zen or three pillars of Zen? Five? Five, five I think. Yeah. At any rate, you know, the, the famous ambassador of Zen Buddhism to the United States, when he was dying of cancer, of some power, you know, some painful, deeply, his gut was turned into fire, you know, and he was in real suffering. He refused painkillers. Mm. Like he wouldn't go on the opium, wouldn't go on the morphine. Um, wow. He said that he wanted to, wanted to fully experience his death. Wow. Yeah. Huh. And I don't think that's uncommon among the uh, remember uh, Oh, the 36, uh, the Lama Dvavniks, yeah. yeah, yeah it reminds yeah, yeah. me of Allen Ginsberg uh, talking about uh, Walt Whitman. Uh, and he said when Walt Whitman died, like at his autopsy, they cut him open. He had like every disease all at once. And uh, Ginsberg said that, that Walt Whitman was a cosmos of diseases. I remember that. I don't know if he was quoting someone, you know, because like Walt Whitman would say things like, I am the cosmos, you know. It turned out he was a cosmos of diseases. If God were to remove his creative force from what he has created, all would return to its primal state or nothingness. Um, I what is that? Augustine said that. If Wow, wow, yeah. The idea that God is kind of... That God is, there is a spiritual component to hell, which I believe has to do with order, has to do with harmony, has to Mm. do with the symmetry of forces within one's body or all Mm. of one's bodies. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, this is what my wife talks about all the time, her, her Christian science, because we have this healing circle, as you know, Sam, is our healing weekly healing circle that we do online. If you somehow contact us, I'll get you into our healing circle. And so my wife talks about Christian science and basically, as I understand it, something like this. The idea is, you know, God in the Bible, God creates people and God creates humans in, in, in God's image. We are the image of God. So it's like, we're kind of a reflection of God. So God can't have a broken leg so therefore, we can't have a broken leg. And therefore, if you think like that, if you kind of really can put your mind deep into that state, your broken leg disappears. I mean, anyway, that's there was a, a Christian science lecturer the other day who gave a talk at the local church through Zoom, and he told this crazy story about how his brother broke his arm. They went to the emergency room. They took the x-ray. The doctor said you have a broken arm, but unfortunately, the next four days is uh, 
Christmas or New Year's, there's nobody around, you have to wait until Monday to come back and have your arms set. You know, put it in a sling, but you have no cast. So the brother is very nervous. He's going to sleep on this broken arm. Maybe he's going to break it worse by when he turns over to sleep. And then his brother, the lecturer, tells him the story. Well, you know, this is what it is. Imagine that you're a mirror and God is in front of the mirror and you are the reflection of the mirror. And the brother is like, yeah, I get that. That makes sense. And then he wakes up the next day and he feels great. And they, on Monday, they go to the hospital and the doctor says, uh, who told you you had a broken arm? And uh, they take another x-ray. He never had a broken arm. Then they look at the first x-ray. Doesn't make any sense. Not possible. But, uh, you know, that's what you do. It's by kind of contemplating the perfection of God that you kind of tune in to the part of yourself that is perfect. Something like that. I, I, don't, I don't know how it happens. I imagine it would be hard for me to do, but I, I'm, I'm open to that. That is, that, is that so? That's the pillar and ground of Christian Science. That's basically, you know, uh, Mary Baker Eddy had this terrible accident. She was supposed to die. Her doctor told her she would die. She had some kind of miraculous healing, and then she started thinking about how did I do that? How did Jesus heal people? And she sort of analyzed it in her mind and came up with something like this: this idea. It's like You know, it's not that we have to follow Jesus, believe in Jesus. It's that we have to become like Jesus. Jesus is like a scientist. He figured out this method, like, uh, you know, the way Newton discovered the principles of light, Jesus discovered these principles of healing. And you you learn them, and then you practice them. That's Christian science. Does Gnosticism come up at all in Christian science? Does the Gnostics, the heretical group from the late antique period, early Christianity, believe that all of us could become Jesus, that you know, we have, oh, yeah. have this God capacity inside of us? We have the mm-hmm. capacity to experience the incarnation on an individual hmm. level. Very, very few have gotten there. Hmm. I was just looking up, you know this quote from Jesus where he says, greater people than me will come. (laughs) And I looked it up the other day, and I got it wrong. He doesn't say that. He says, they will do greater deeds than me, or something like that. He said, my followers will do greater something like, well, of course, it's the trend, you know, it depends on the translation. Will do greater acts than I have done, or something like that. It's a strange, mysterious passage that nobody ever talks about, because it doesn't fit into... The, uh, the what the what became a religion, you know, it's like what Jesus was doing. It doesn't feel like a religion. It feels like some kind of strange, uh, you know, transient preaching by some bizarre avatar. Yeah, yeah. The one thing, the you know, look to those who follow me sounds a little bit like Walt Whitman. But then also, you know, to be Christian, as I understand it is to live as Christ, or perhaps more uh, esoterically, you know, to to be as Christ, is to be a Christian. Mm. I mean, to be a Buddhist, isn't that to be as Buddha? I don't know, because I went to Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve the other day in uh, on Zoom, in some, or whatever it is, more like on Christian.org TV, and uh, I ended up in some s- church in Florida, 
And this guy was very big, this priest who was talking, he was very big on the idea of how we do not deserve Jesus. We didn't deserve to have uh, Jesus come and save us, to incarnate as a human being, for God to come and incarnate. Like, we yeah, don't deserve it. None of us. We're just a bunch of terrible sinners. That's, I hate that's that. Sparrow, that's, that's, the, that's the co-optation by the mob or, you know, by some <laughs> you know, crazy, you know, the banderlog of, you know, your more true sense of Christianity is, you know, to be as Christ and to follow his path. And I think Mary Baker Eddy, she put her uh, hand on the rail. You know, I think that she was in touch. I think she was too. It makes me want to join the prayer, prayer circle, the um, healing circle rather, and learn more about Christian science. And please tell your wife that I said that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're welcome to join us. That's for sure. I love it. It's not a Christian science group. It's a healing circle, but it's kind of influenced by Christian science principles. That's, is this, it's more like an attempt to kind of understand what is healing, which, come to think of it, is kind of what we're talking about in this podcast. I guess healing and health got to be connected somehow. That It's funny that our conversation has sort of drifted to the subject of healing all by itself. It is interesting and significant, I agree. And I, I think to be healthy does involve the ability to self-heal probably, right? Or at least to be receptive to the the healing arts of others. I think it's kind of implicit in a lot of the stuff we're talking about, like moderation, in a way, using that carrot and stick to yourself and saying, well, if I just make it till tonight, I get another whiskey. You know, the, in a way, is kind of healing your, your tendency towards uh, being downcast or hopeless. It's like giving yourself this goal, giving yourself a small, realizable goal and a larger, great goal. Like, I'm going to be the greatest uh, collage artist on earth that's the goal that i'm set for myself recently you know yeah so well the, uh, well, the um anglo-saxons were not adverse to a nip of whiskey in the evening and you know hmm. the word health is a direct you know has a direct line back to you know the lower old lower germanic tongues um the word you know, is H plus the ash, which is the A and E stuck together, L, and then the thorn. So our word health, as it would have been spoken by the Anglo-Saxons, is closer to health, oh. the word health, which means wholeness, which means being well, which means oh. uh, sound. And there's a whole family of words that, you know, are with health, you know, that are associated, that we, that have the same sound spoken. Hail, holy, hagyan, halon. You know, this kind of, it's got a particular sound body or shape that I associate with health, mm. actually. Mm. That's and with breath, camera. right? That aspirin H. Mm. Yes. Yeah, that, that H sound is an interesting sound because it's it's kind of the gentlest consonant. <laughs> it's a consonant. Like I'm a New Yorker, so I don't say the aspirin H. I don't say, uh, I have a friend, Hugo. I call him Hugo. I don't call him Hugo. 
you know, I don't say those H's like human. I don't say human. I say human. Y-U-M-A-N, human. And so, but health, I do say that H. It's like the, the it's one of the aspirin H's that even a New Yorker says. And it's a very gentle sound, health. It's like a, the softest of, of sounds that is not a vowel. <laughs> I listened to some recent uh, series of lectures, uh, great courses uh, from the Woodstock Library on uh, dialects. What was it called? English in America, it was called, uh, about American dialects. So I'm like a little more conscious of how I speak after listening to these lectures. Do you think that there's a register of health that can be measured by the voice, by how one speaks? Mm. Well, that's a very interesting question that you're posing. I don't have a response to it. But I do. So I, there is something that I want to say about language and narrative mm. um, as perhaps indicating one's health. Can I, can I share that? Yeah. Okay, it takes us in a slightly different direction. As I was preparing for this conversation, I was thinking about the work of a um, of a French postmodern theorist who, who who I read quite a bit of in graduate school, named Paul Ricoeur, mm -hmm. R I C O E U R, and he wrote this book, I believe, in the early 1990s. Maybe it was one of his final monographs um, called um, "Oneself as Another." Mm. In this in this work, um, he was influenced by Sigmund Freud as a lot of the um, the French postmodern theorists were. He was interested in human health. He was interested in narrative. And he does um, implicitly argue that um, you can determine one's state of well-being by the shape that their their personal narrative comes in. Hmm. in, in he uses um, this concept of the discordant concordance. The discordant concordance. <laughs> That uh, if, if someone is able um, to maintain personal identity at the narrative level that um, is open to all difficulty, turns in the road, things that are hard to explain, um, darkness, hmm. if, if you're able to incorporate those dark patches into your personal life narrative, your story. In a, in a way that doesn't fundamentally fragment and break up your um, your mm. identity, that, that mm. that's a sign of, of psychological well-being. That's a sign of narrative wholeness. I find it it's an intriguing idea. Yeah, the the use of the word this idea. I mean, right. it makes me think about paradox in a way, like like maintaining a kind of a talent <laughs> for paradox that you can you can be happy and sad at once, for example. Yeah. Negative capability also comes to mind. In what sense? Oh, negative, what do you mean? negative capability is, you know, this is John Keats, right? Uh, the capacity yeah. to hold two contradictory thoughts in your mind simultaneously. Yeah, I, was, I wrote this essay about my mother dying that's just getting ready to be published. It was just published, actually, in The Sun magazine. And in this essay, which I just reread, uh, a friend of mine says to me, uh, I'm, I'm sick of all the drama in my life, you know, and, and then I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking like, God, in my life, there's no drama. You know, my life must be a comedy. 
I guess it like lacks drama. And then my mother dies, you know, I'm 66, she's 96. She dies kind of suddenly, and suddenly there's a kind of drama, it's kind of tragedy has happened to me, and I have to sort of confront the fact that my life is kind of a comedy, but now it has a tragedy in it. And how do, how do I, what's the word, uh, you know? Incorporate. Uh, make, uh, yeah. That's what records after, the ability yeah. to mm. incorporate those things into your self-expressions without yeah. a lot of denial and the need to sublimate it into some um, rosier picture. That or make a joke about it in the case of me, where I'm like a funny guy that makes lots of jokes. You know, this is uh, something that I couldn't joke about even to myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I kind of really want to focus in on this. I think it's a super interesting proposition that Ricard has. And I guess this idea of incorporate um, a story, the story of your life. So part of it ha must have to do with mm. embodying your life, like being open mm. to the experiences of, of your life that you have at mm. hand and embody and are able to use to moderate the environment around you, which I think Sparrow, um, you're exemplary in that, actually. I think your yeah, I think access to your life and to memorable events in your life that aren't all comic, you know, they're like this and that. I don't know. I think they have a much more um, complex characteristics mm. but um yeah i think that you do embody the story of your life through your voice and i think that you know there is a register of health in your voice sparrow and in your laughter i would mm. also point out yeah yeah i think yeah. laughter is really as it says in the uh reader's digest you know i'm like many people i one of the first things i read my grandmother got the my Russian grandmother got the uh, Reader's Digest because I think she could understand it. And uh, and they have that section, laughter is the best medicine. And uh, yeah, my wife and I were invited to go to this commune in West Virginia. Patch Adams uh, organized it. It was his commune, but he wasn't there. And he went on to become a pretty famous movie yeah. starring Robin Williams, pretending to be Patch That's Adams. And it's all about Patch Adams was a doctor, or is a doctor, I don't know if he's alive, who uh, believes that laughter is the best medicine, that you should just uh, laugh as much as possible, and that's the key to you know, help. Along those lines, I was reading um, an ancient Chinese Buddhist hagiography in recent years. Um, part of a collection translated the lives of eminent monks and nuns from uh, Mahayana mm -hmm. Buddhism. I think it dates to the 6th or 8th century of the Common Era, but uh, it's full of these um, short hagiographies of um, various bodhisattvas and response bodies. Mm. And one of my favorites involved um, a bodhisattva who poses as a doctor and uh, a, um, a very wealthy man has a sick boy, a sick son, and mm. he's out in the street looking for um, a doctor to help his son who he fears is dying and this um, this response body, this bodhisattva appears in the form of a doctor and goes mm. back to the household. And the child is very much impaired in bed. And uh, the father watches in horror 
as the uh, the Bodhisattva proceeds to fill up his mouth with water and spit it all over the boy, which causes ah. a great deal of clownish laughter between the doctor and the son, and he's healed. <laughs> Just by laughing. Yeah, he's healed. And that was the medicine. That was the medicine that the young boy needed. And he he spit the water at the kid? Yes, but, but huh. in, a, in a buffoonish way, in a, in, in a way that would, would, would lead a, a small child to crack up. Huh. Wow. It's, it's such a, a lovely illustration of what you're saying about, uh, about laughter. Yeah, it's a great thought. Returning to this notion of incorporation, I just want to say autobiographically that I come from a long line of people. I don't know if it's a Polish and, and Irish Catholic thing, but I come from a long line of people, grandparents in particular, who lived through all of these tragedies and were never able to talk about them. We're oh yeah, incorporating. Oh, and uh, even my, you know, my maternal grandfather, who I was very close with, he um, on New Year's Day, in the I believe in the early 1940s, he was in a car accident uh, on Coney Island, and his huh. pregnant wife died. Oh my God! And he oh, wow. sustained a brain injury, was in a coma for a period of time, missed the funerals. Wow. Um, came out of the coma, had some bizarre, like, 1942 metal plate put into his head. Wow. And he never talked about it. <laughs> I mean, my, my, the, Probably didn't remember. The woman he, he ended up marrying, my grandmother, my mother's mother, I, she knew about it. But he kept it all to himself. And I, I just wonder, like, would he have been... Uh, would there have been a release of energy had he been able to talk about it, incorporate it? Mm. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the kids I grew up around, you know, n nowadays I go to these strange reunions of my fifth grade class on Zoom, and sometimes people tell this, their stories of their families, like crazy stories of, uh, you know, their parents were uh, in Poland and were almost caught by the Nazis. There was a woman I interviewed uh, the other day. She's an artist in Rockland County, and I'm forgetting her name, but her parents were in a concentration camp, Theresienstadt, or some famous concentration camp, and they were allowed, they had uh, friends who ran a, the Leica Film Company, like a camera company, who were able to get them out of the concentration camp if they agreed to give all their money to the Nazis. They were allowed to escape, you know, to be released, and they came to America. Like, like these are the kind of stories that the kids in my class had, these holo crazy Holocaust stories that nobody ever talked about. Their parents didn't talk about it. The kids didn't talk about it. We were a a million miles distant from from this reality that was just one generation away from us. Uh, so yeah, people until recently, and probably still most people now, don't talk about their trauma. You know, it's trauma is what shuts people up. I mean, that's what that's what makes people silent. In according general. to Allen Ginsberg's poem, "Cut It," his mother. Mm. That's part of what killed his mother. That really? Son, that inability to, um, I think, to work through it. So Allen Ginsberg does that hard work. Right. The poem itself, by incorporating 
the trauma of his mother into their hmm. generational narrative yeah. in a way that liberates them from the key, uh, from the um, residual dark energy of it. I yeah, think the key that's is my understanding. The light. The key is in the light in the window. Alan, don't do drugs. The key is in the light in the window. Oh yeah, yeah. That's his mother raving in her schizophrenic madness. Final letter to him that he receives after her death while he's in Berkeley, California. The letter wow. arrived maybe a week or two after he's he's learned it perhaps. Well, well, yeah. Plus, she was a communist, and there was the whole communist silence, which was partly kind of necessary just for survival that you couldn't really talk about being a communist, or you would, you know, be ostracized and sent to prison in some cases. So she had that on top of everything else. The other generational traumas. I, I did want to circle back to uh, the Bodhisattva, Andrew. Yeah. Just briefly, I wanted to point out that Robin Blazer had a serial poem, you know, that he wrote, you know, over decades called The Truth is Laughter. The Truth is Laughter. Is it but a funny poem? Oh, no, it's, it's multi-dimensional, cultural, uh, personal, um, hmm. very profound. Robin Blazer is a, was a great poet, you know, part of the Berkeley Renaissance, cool. and a lovely person. Hmm. Um, yeah, real, you know, one of the 36, maybe. Maybe he's like 37 or, you know, 42, who knows. Oh, I see, yeah. But what do you make of, like, Ricord's notion of incorporation into a narrative as a marker of um, health versus... Hmm what I deem to be the Buddhist emphasis on letting go, on silence, as the way to liberation. I, I don't see a, uh, what's the word, a contradiction. I, I, I'm not sure that your concept of Buddhism, you know, no offense, you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, I, I don't, I, it's, it's exactly correct. I think that, uh, you know, by narrative doesn't mean necessarily that you're talking about it or thinking about it, you know, but more like how you see it. And I think, like, a Buddhist is kind of, uh, well, I mean, they have, the Buddhists have the advantage, I'm not, I don't consider myself a Buddhist, that, that um, of, uh, you know, it begins with suffering. That's the basic question that Buddha is considering, that begins Buddhism. So, uh, so it's not so hard to, right. I, I think maybe the Buddhists have a little more trouble, uh, 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 you know, incorporating joy or explaining joy, uh, happiness, and maybe goofiness than they do uh, all the tragedies of life, you know. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I was going to say, the first thing I was going to say was that there are thousands of types of health that, uh, yeah, you know, I thought this about, about love. You know, people speak of love. There's a one word for love that indicates, you know, you, you love your goldfish, you love God, you love your wife, you know husbands, you know, like there's the same word. There's really thousands of types of love. I think that's pretty obvious. And I would su suspect that there are thousands of types of health. Like to, to think of some unitary uh, identity as if health can be defined in some, you know, simple way, I, I think it may be a mistake. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.